You're listening to Houston. We have a podcast where we talk everything and anything movies and their reviews. And this is episode five. Hey, everybody, show here. Welcome to Houston. We have a podcast. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. Houston We Have a Podcast is produced every two weeks for your enjoyment, and show notes can be found at houstonwehaveapodcast.libsyn, which is spelled L-I-B-S-Y-N, dot com. Come back often and feel free to add the podcast to your favorite feed or on iTunes, and you can follow me on Twitter at S-N-S-A-L-L-I, that's S-N-S Alley. But enough of that, to start things off, let's check out what's going on in the movie world this week. Oh, princess, there's someone I'm dying to introduce you to. Jafar, get your hands off her! Prince Ali, yes it is he, but not as you know him. The latest Disney movie to get the live-action treatment is, of course, none other than Aladdin, if you couldn't guess from the clip, and it's finally found most, if not all, of the main characters. It's already been announced that Mina Masood, a relative newcomer, is the titular street rat, while Naomi Scott, who we last probably saw in Power Rangers earlier this year, is Princess Jasmine. Going a different direction from the legendary Robin Williams performance, the genie has been cast, and it is Will Smith. I suppose it is pretty difficult to follow up such a legend like Robin Williams. Will Smith, of course, is famous for a different reason in his own right, but... With Robin Williams, of course, it's very it's a it's a role that is laced with nostalgia for a lot of people, including myself. But when you watch Aladdin again today, a lot of the jokes and a lot of the mannerisms that make the genie one of the most unique Disney characters in all of their movies, it still holds up today. And I think trying to emulate that would have been a mistake. And of course, I think Will Smith will do a fine job. I can just imagine Aladdin letting genie out of the lamp. And Will Smith saying something like, damn, it's been a long ass time since I've been out of this lamp. You know, something something silly like that. And that is the kind of humor that Will Smith, A, is famous for and can and B, can absolutely do a phenomenal job with. So I'm actually pretty excited about the Will Smith casting. But as the clip implies from earlier, from the intro to this segment, Jafar has been cast. And the actor been cast as Jafar is Marwan Kanzari, another relative newcomer. And he'll also be in the upcoming Murder on the Orient Express with Kenneth Branagh later this year. And another role cast, uh, Nassim Hadrad from SNL, will, will have an original role. So it sounds like it'll be something around, along the lines of, you know, a handmaiden perhaps to Jasmine. You know, I, I don't necessarily think it's super relevant maybe if that's the best word to use maybe super necessary itself but whatever you know she was a great comedic actress and maybe she can be the you know the 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 fall guy for lack of a better term to naomi scott's more straight man kind of character so anyways aladdin is a movie a disney movie i should say that holds a very special place in my heart not just because i'm brown but because it's a legitimately fun movie you know it talks about origins and what you can be versus what you are and maybe those are the same things maybe they're not sometimes and anyways i think this is shaping up to be an interesting movie it is directed by guy ritchie so i expect some cockney english accents in there at least somewhere but you know i think it's gonna be fun so let's keep an eye on that one 
Okay, I know this is not necessarily a song that was famous because of Guardians of the Galaxy, but, you know, a lot of people know it now because of that movie, so we're going to roll with it. As you might have guessed, Guardians of the Galaxy news has been floating around recently. Volume 3, which obviously has not come out yet, is coming out in a few years. It has been announced by James Gunn that that movie will mark the end of the current lineup of characters. It's been kind of hinted that perhaps Rocket's storyline will end in the next movie. Largely, this has been hinted by nothing in the movies, certainly. We've all seen Guardians of the Galaxy 1 and 2, both excellent movies. And Rocket has become a different character in each one. But it's been more hinted outside of the movies because Bradley Cooper's contract is film to film, for example. So we don't know. Maybe maybe it won't be Bradley Cooper. Maybe it'll be Vin Diesel. I mean, he really only says, I am Groot for the whole movie. Maybe Groot will depart, although that would seem likely that Rocket will depart as well since they're buds. Uh, maybe Zamora will leave. I find it difficult to see Chris Pratt leaving the role since this is the the role that has made him a megastar in Hollywood right now. So, you know, who knows? But one way or another, these five characters, Star-Lord, Gamora, Drax, Rocket, Groot, that lineup will end in after, rather, Volume 3. Maybe Marvel will go after the previously hinted at lineup that we saw in Guardians 2 with Sylvester Stallone, Ving Rhames, etc. I believe Miley Cyrus was that head thing. I'm not super current with the canon slash reality of the original Guardians of the Galaxy, I admit. Um, But maybe they'll go after that. Maybe that scene was something that'll be included in a later movie as another cameo kind of thing for the famous stars of Stallone and Rhames, etc. Who knows, maybe they'll even do a prequel-type series of Guardians of the Galaxy, and that's what they mean by marking the end of the current lineup. Maybe the five characters that we all know and love that I just mentioned, maybe they'll stay, and the current lineup will just be going back, quote-unquote, to the original lineup that I just mentioned, right? So, I mean, who knows? It's all a complete shot in the dark, speculation. Maybe one of them will die in the Infinity Wars next year. Who knows, right? But I do think it's fine to speculate. And, of course, Guardians of the Galaxy in the Marvel Universe, at least right now, is arguably responsible for the colorful palettes that we've seen in trailers from Thor Ragnarok, from Black Panther, right? So it's clearly had a large influence on the Marvel Universe, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, I should say, and its success is integral to the films generally, not at the whole universe, certainly, because they all make oodles of money, but everyone wants to know what happens with the Guardians, so... Uh, and, I, and I am one of those people, so I will be following this news with the proverbial uh, bated breath. Another announcement made recently is that Sony is actually being sued for lacking the license to use that song we just heard, T-Rex, Deborah, in Baby Driver. And, you know, maybe I should mention here, I'm really hoping we at Houston, we have a podcast, don't get sued. But, you know, I'm thinking we're not quite as big as a multinational mega movie corporation like Sony. But I find this interesting because 
before the movie was made, or at least before it was released in theaters, Edgar Wright, the director, talked at length about how the songs are so integral to the movie and that he had gone to great lengths, jumped through a lot of hoops, corporate and otherwise, to get all the songs that he wanted into the movie and that he had even considered some scenes being shot and written differently based on the songs that would be playing in them. So considering the T-Rex song, which is called Deborah, named after one of the main characters in the movie, one of the characters that drives a lot of the action, pardon the pun, and I find it crazy that Sony doesn't have that license. Perhaps they thought they did, and they bought it from a certain production company when, in fact, another company actually had the rights, but I wonder how this will affect the release of the movie on Blu-ray. Can they really just cut out that whole scene? Will they just chop it out if they don't end up getting the rights? I mean... I don't think so. This movie was such a phenomenal success critically and commercially that I find it difficult to believe that they'll just axe one of the the movie's most important scenes over some silly issue like a licensing thing. I shouldn't say silly. It is an important issue, but I find it more likely that Sony will just pay some kind of fine and everything will be as it was. As the Deborah song really is integral to the movie, you can't just, you can't just cut it out. You, You just can't. It's, it's too important and it's also a great scene, right? It's a, it, it drives the action of the movie. It, it, it develops a relationship between two of the primary characters in a fun and heartwarming and clever way. And plus, it's a really darn good song, right? So I only mentioned this because Baby Driver was a movie that we covered on the podcast a few episodes ago. And frankly, even now, now that I've seen Dunkirk, I've seen Get Out this year earlier, before we started the podcast, Baby Driver, War for the Planet of the Apes, etc. And Baby Driver, I think, is my favorite movie of the year still, I would say. And I felt it was relevant. So here's hoping that T-Rex's Deborah gets to stay in the movie. But, uh, you know, this is Hollywood and you never know what happens. But we'll keep our fingers crossed. You know, I only just now realized, as I'm talking right now, that I think three of the four news segments we've done have all been on Disney. I guess that's just a sign of how many movies Disney makes, how Disney has really got their claws into most people, including myself. Although I'm not ashamed, Disney makes some awesome movies. But in this segment, I want to talk about something a little more abstract. Disney has announced that they will be pulling their titles from Netflix and other streaming services, although right now I think it is primarily between Disney and Netflix, and they're doing this to create their own streaming service. Marvel titles and Star Wars titles on Netflix and other services might be following later in terms of if they are are not going to be pulled. I find this very interesting because let's think about this a little larger scale picture, right? Disney wants to make their own version of Netflix, whatever they call it, right? There's already things, like we mentioned, Amazon Prime, there's Hulu, you know, there was Show Me here in Canada. I don't think Show Me exists anymore, but that's beside the point. It existed at one point, and you have all these different streaming services, and then you have other things like HBO Go slash HBO Now, you know, you have CBS creating their own thing, so you can wa- you have to subscribe so you can watch 
I believe it's called Star Trek Discovery, their new show that's only going to be available on their streaming service. So that's how they want to get you to sign up for that, right? So Disney's pull, much like CBS's pull, they're trying to get Discovery up there. Disney's pull is their movies. They're betting that you will want to see their movies and that you will pay for a separate service to see them. And I, I find this so interesting because this really reminds me of cable, right? And especially in this day and age, when a lot of people are cutting the cord, so to speak, so they don't have to watch, or rather, they don't have to pay for a cable subscription, right? So here in Canada, we have Rogers and Bell, the two major companies. And a lot of people would rather have a subscription to Netflix than pay Rogers $100, $125 a month for X amount of channels. And... Now all these streaming services are basically doing the same thing. Like, Who wants to subscribe to 10 different streaming services so you can watch something that you used to be able to watch on one, right? I have to imagine at some point some enterprising company is going to reach out there and say, okay, you want to watch Netflix movies, you want to watch Disney movies, you want to watch Amazon Prime, you want to watch Hulu. I have to imagine that some company will say, okay, yeah, pay us, pay us $20 or a month, and or, uh, you know, $100 a year, I don't know, whatever the prices may be, so you can watch all of these things. And that essentially is what a cable box is, right? I don't know. I That's neither here nor there. I can't exactly fault Disney for doing it because at the end of the day, their purpose is not to necessarily, you know, do something that consumers want. It's 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 to make money, right? It's to make money for their shareholders and for the board of directors and for people who work there, et cetera, right? So all that to say, I guess... If Disney wants to do it, great, but I don't know that I would, for example, even as someone who obviously loves and loves movies, Disney movies, etc., I don't know that I would be paying another subscription-based service. Honestly, I, I I hate to say it, but I feel like this could eventually continue to increase the piracy levels of, of properties. Not that that's a good thing, and I certainly don't condone it, but it's an interesting conundrum. Are people going to want to pay five, six, seven plus services so they can watch everything they want? Or are they just going to go back and pirate things? Who knows? We already see that even with the relative ease of access for something like HBO, Game of Thrones remains one of the most pirated shows every week, week in and week out, right? So it's all this speculation, like a lot of these things are, but it's an interesting situation to keep an eye on. And if any other developments come out, we'll definitely cover it here on the podcast. Alrighty, that's enough of the movie news. We've covered a lot of that more than usual today, I know. A lot of stuff going on the last few weeks. But let's talk about some movies themselves. So, the two movies we're going to be covering here today at Houston, we have a podcast, are Atomic Blonde and The Dark Tower. Two very different movies. And I find it interesting because they... Well, you know, I was going to say some fancy words like juxtaposition and whatnot, but the truth is The Dark Tower was bad and Atomic Blonde was awesome. They have such different strengths and weaknesses, and we're going to talk about all of that stuff here on the podcast tonight. So, you know what, let's start with some bad news first, as horrible that is to say. I wanted this movie to be so much better, but regardless, we're going to start things off with the adaptation of Stephen King's magnum opus, the Dark Tower. Hey, Jude, don't make it bad. Take a sad song and make it better. All 
right, we got some Beatles in there. Hey Jude. I guess I should explain why I played that song. I think most of you guys can probably, you know, guess why the various songs we play are, are played before each song. I try to go with something that's relevant to the movie, whether it's by name or by sound or what have you. Hey Jude, you will not hear that song in the Dark Tower if you watch this movie, which you shouldn't. But you won't hear that song in the movie at all. So why play it, right? I played it because in the novels, and I, I hate being one of those people who's who says something like, oh, well, you know, in the book they did this, and in the book they did that, right? I mean, people, I'm sure my friends in real life are sick of me saying that crap about Game of Thrones because I did read the books in 2005, right? Anyway, so I, I do think it's relevant for The Dark Tower here because The Dark Tower... One of the movies, or I should say one of the issues that plagues this movie is that it's forgettable. It's so forgettable. And one of the things that make the novels themselves not forgettable, one of the things that has made them so enduringly popular over the years, considering it took Stephen King, what, 25 years to finish the whole series, right? So it it's such a unique-looking and 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 sounding world when you read it or if you're listening to an audiobook or if you're just experiencing this textual series or if you're reading the graphic novel version what what have you it's an interesting blend of a western and sci-fi and not in the same way that Westworld the HBO show is for example but in a different way in a more dystopian way in a way that is sad and is gross and is fun and exciting and action-packed and all of these things and the movie is just not. It's just not that great. The novels themselves are a very long saga, right? And the movie, the way they were kind of presenting the movie was that it was a sequel. I'm not going to spoil how the novels end because it really is actually a pretty cool, if, if a little sad, ending. Although, and it implies that you can keep experiencing the Dark Tower and its story over and over and over and over again, perhaps with no end. And so they they kind of positioned this movie, this adaptation, as another retelling of the story of the Dark Tower and the pursuit of the people, or I should say the the various characters' pursuit of it, right? And it's just, like I said, so forgettable. And why is that, right? It's because it's basically a, a young adult fantasy dystopia. It's like the the creators of this movie saw you know, the Hunger Games and saw the success of that with its dystopian world and all this stuff. And they were just like, how can we adapt, how can we adapt the Dark Tower series and make it as appealing to as many people as possible? And I think that is probably the crux of the issue I have with this movie. It didn't have to be necessarily for the fans, right? Because I think then you get a movie like Warcraft that is so, quote unquote, inside as one of my instructors would say, inside meaning, you know, it's so, it's such an inside joke or an inside thing that only a certain people will get that you risk alienating a whole bunch of other people, right? Whose name is Walter. They meet, like, she kind of goes back into her apartment because she hears someone in there and she goes in there with her boyfriend or stepdad like, or her husband or whatever. And they go in there and uh, there's Matthew McConaughey in his nice dress shirt and dress shoes and whatever. And he is cooking. You know, he's making, I don't know, a chicken sandwich or something. I think he actually says, oh, well, I don't have chicken in my world. Thank you for having this chicken here in this world. I love chicken. And it's really weird. But 
And, you know, it's just, there's some silly lines of dialogue, and he just hams it up. And Walter, Walter also is definitely the defining antagonist of the series. And yet, he was just so, again, generic is just maybe the best word. Generic and disappointing. Those are the two best words that can describe this movie, because there's nothing really all that awful about this movie. You know what I mean? There's maybe the writing and some of the acting are not the greatest, but it's not as bad as some of the other movies we've reviewed on the podcast and other movies that have come out this year, right? It's just I and I mentioned this already, it's it's disappointing because of what it's adapted from. It had the potential to be great and instead it became this lame every other fantasy movie thing that just didn't really have any weight to it, you know? And, you know, they do a lot of other weird things, too. Like, the movie starts with one of the most confusing critter-slash-villain character race things in the whole series. And they're not even introduced into the books, I don't think, until the very last book. And they're these kind of rat-looking creatures. And it's never explained to you, the viewer, and I know why, right? Because I read the books, and I hate to keep mentioning that, but that's why I know why they're rats and what they are and why they're important to the story, right? But if you've never in your life read or heard of The Dark Tower and you went to go see this movie, because that's how the movie starts, you would be so friggin' confused because it's never explained why they are rats. Like, why do they actually need to be rats in the context of this one movie? There's, there, there's no explanation for that. There's no real explanation for their background, you know, other than they're in a crazy world and shit gets real and everything is on its heads and this is where rats talk and animals talk in this other universe and whoa, it's crazy here, right? But that's the only reason really given and even that reason is implied. You have to really read between the lines for that. They're just there, right? Like their importance is never really underlined in terms of why they have to be like that. And maybe that's a really crazy thing to nitpick because the movie, there are a lot of other stupid things in this movie, but... It's, uh, I don't know. I think I've gotten the point across appropriately that this movie is just disappointing. It's it's average. No, it's not average. It's well below average, but it's just so blah, meh, eh. You know, I'm glad I saw it in theaters because there are some really funny moments that definitely were not meant to be funny, like that chicken moment with the mom and the man in black. But... Those moments, people all in the theater, and I went to go see it with a friend of mine, and we laughed. We just straight up laughed, and I was kind of, I kind of regretted it. I kind of cringe after I laughed because I, I thought to myself, oh man, I really hope I'm not ruining this moment for other people in the movie theater. And I looked around, uh, and people were laughing too, you know, there are some people shaking their heads. There was a woman sitting on my left who, when we came in to sit down in our seats, she was, I guess they had been there for a, for a little while because it wasn't a reserved seating kind of showing. So she was, I guess she and her boyfriend were waiting. And she had the, the very first book, The Gunslinger, in her hand. And she was reading it while I guess they were waiting. So she clearly was a huge fan of The Dark Tower. And I, I kind of stuck some peeks at her throughout the movie when I, when I was afraid I was disrupting other people. And she was kind of laughing, shaking her head kind of in in dismay or kind of shock maybe and you know i find that i find that's the perfect reaction because you know it's it's, it's like when your parents say you know i'm not mad i'm just disappointed that's that's the perfect way to sum up the, that review of the dark tower that's how i felt afterwards and i was just i was just so disappointed 
It kind of makes me want to go reread the books, though, because the books are so much better. You know, if you haven't read the books, they're great. You can probably find them, you know, digital copy. If you want to read the graphic novels, also a great way to encounter the series. It's just so much better than this movie. Truly, and I know this is a, this is a line that a lot of Stephen King fans will probably overuse the crap out of because this movie was so bad, but this movie and the creators of this movie have forgotten the face of their father. They have. My goodness. I believe the Rotten Tomatoes uh, consensus, if you go, I believe all it says right now is, go then. There are other Stephen King adaptations than these. And that is just perfect, considering the line that they adapted that from, from the novels. Anyways, I'll stop there. Consensus from me, don't go see this movie. There truly are better movies to go see your, to spend your money on in theaters, and you'd be remiss if you wasted your time and energy and hard-earned money on The Dark Tower, unfortunately. It's always great to get the bad news out of the way first. That's my own personal philosophy. And similarly, as far as the podcast is concerned, it's always great to end on a high note. So, without further ado, let's talk Atomic Blonde. I should start by saying Atomic Blonde was directed by David Leitch, and David Leitch directed most famously John Wick. It's probably the thing he's most famous for. He co-directed it, I should say, with Chad Stahelski, and he did not direct Chapter 2. Chapter 1 came out in 2014 that he directed with Stahelski, and then Chapter 2, which he was not involved in. Maybe he was a producer or something like that, but that was directed by just Stahelski on his lonesome because... Leech was busy making Atomic Blonde, right? But I mentioned this, even though we haven't really talked about John Wick on the podcast in terms of a review, and quick micro-review, it was awesome, and the first one is just as good, if not better. So if you're a fan of those kind of movies, and if, you, if you've seen John Wick, you will like, if not love, Atomic Blonde. And it, it, it features this, the trademark violent, close combat action that John Wick kind of made so famous again, I should say. It's not that John Wick kind of reinvented the action movie. I wouldn't go that far, but John Wick certainly brought the awareness back to, you know, a tightly focused action thriller movie, and Atomic Blonde, I think, does wonders to further that. So we'll talk a little bit about that. And those are the similarities to John Wick, really. But, you know, before we get to that that far, we'll talk about the soundtrack. And, of course, we started today with New Order's Blue Monday. You know, and there's some really, there's some just awesome, awesome songs on the soundtrack for this movie. You know, there's London Calling by The Clash. There's David Bowie. There's some George Michael. You know, there's, it's a perfect blend of 80s music. And I think that's important to mention because this whole movie takes place in the months before and after the fall of the Berlin Wall. And we see situations and scenes in both East and West Germany uh, and, you know, how, you know, it was difficult for people to cross over for both people like spies, like Charlie Theron's character, Lorraine, and the families that live on one side who want to come to the other side, who want to, who need to get out of the country, who want to get into the country, right? So 
it's a fascinating look, and I, f- I feel like I went to go see this movie with a friend of mine, actually, and he made a very salient point that in movies, and really in history in general, but I think we were talking more along the lines of movies, and that the 80s seems to be this weird decade that is almost forgotten. I wouldn't say forgotten. I, I at least would not say forgotten in terms of the general population because there's a lot of really awesome music and clothing that have come out in the 80s. But I think he went on to say, my friend went on to say that, you know, it, it's largely viewed as a decade where people kind of lost their minds, right? You know, there's some lot of weird, a lot of weird shit that came out of the 80s, right? And I would agree. I mean, there's a lot of weird things. And I think they, the movie did an amazing job of capturing the aesthetic of the late 80s, early 90s that was so famous, especially for me. I mean, I grew up in the late, the early 90s, right? So it was it was great to see. Maybe for me, it was definitely tinted a little bit, not a lot, but a little bit in nostalgia. But the aesthetic of this movie is brilliant. It is so awesome. The movie starts with kind of, you know, blackened, night scene that sets the tone for the whole movie. And then the first scene we see Charlize Theron in, she's kind of surfacing of the, out of this body of water. And then you realize she's taking an ice bath. Like it's this, you know, she's in some kind of white bathtub and she has, her character has bleach blonde hair. And of course, Charlize Theron herself is white. So all these very light colors are going on in the scene, but it's all framed by this, Maybe framed is the bad word, but it's all painted, I should say, by this very light blue, this very cold color. And it almost seems to inform the rest of the movie and, and, and inform the treatment of how we're going to see this spy Lorraine. Because, of course, that's what it's about. It's a spy thriller like John Wick is, right? And instead of him being a hitman, she's a spy who's an ultra badass. But... I really found that it, it informed the rest of the movie because Lorraine is a cold, detached character. And in all of the scenes where we get to, we get under her skin a little bit, every single one of those scenes in the movie, you know, under her skin, into her mind a little bit, they're all colored differently. But every other scene in the movie where she's kicking ass and t- not taking names because she doesn't give a shit, you know, there's very little vibrant colors in those scenes she wears a lot of white a lot of dark colors you know there's a lot of blue going on and you know it's just awesome to see a lot of neon in this movie a lot of grungy neon you know all over the place you know a lot of leather and black as well but it's it's really cool to watch it really is one point i also wanted to make and i think this is another fantastic thing that the movie does for you the viewer is the fighting and not just because this is an action movie, it's really also a spy thriller, kind of a an homage to these kind of Tinker Tailor soldier spy type movies, right? Except with way more violence. But I think David Leach has made a conscious decision, and I think this is also really rooted in the experience he had creating John Wick, in that the fighting is super realistic. Even more so than really what happens in John Wick if you've seen that movie. A lot of what happens in that movie is gunplay, right? I think people kind of popularize the term gun-fu, you know, like kung-fu, but gun-fu, because he does a lot of kind of martial arts-type actions with his his body and hands and arms and feet and legs, etc., while he's holding a wielding a pistol and shooting people and doing all this kind of crazy stuff. It was really cool, honestly. That is not what Atomic Blonde does. 
Atomic Blonde gets right up in there, down and dirty in the fighting. Charlize Theron's character, Lorraine, Lorraine often goes for the windpipe. She goes for the knees, the legs, those kind of joint areas. And she uses her own strengths, which which a lot of the time is her speed and quickness to get out of a fight or to win a fight rather than throwing around her body weight. And I've seen a lot of people complain that other action movies, whether it's a woman or a man, you know, if you're a smaller person that you can't beat up a larger person, you know, if a, if a person has 50 pounds on you, that does obviously make a fight weighted in the person's favor, in the, in the heavier person's favor, right? So I appreciated that they did not do that for Charlize Theron. They kind of let her, because Charlize Theron is a slim kind of actress, right? She's a slim human being, and it wouldn't really make sense if she just, like, slugs a guy in the face and he goes flying, right? Because that's not the world they built in this movie. And it would it would seem, not, I shouldn't say out of character, but it would seem, it would break your immersion in the movie, right? And I don't think there was any point where my immersion was broken because of the fighting and the acting that went out, went down in this movie. And, you know, the the battles seemed to actually be weighty battles. You know, it wasn't just her dispatching people left and right. I mean, she does do that on occasion, and it is so badass. But, you know, there's a scene in the middle of the movie, I'll say, where she kind of fights a whole bunch of cops. She doesn't fight, like, fellow assassins. She fights a whole bunch of cops, and they're kind of coming to investigate something going on. And... She kind of ambushes them. And it was really cool because she kicks their ass. There's there's no real struggle for her because she gets to get the, gets the drop on them. And it was really cool to see because, you know, you, you, get, you get this sense throughout the whole movie that she is this badass assassin slash spy who works for MI6. And they talk a lot about it and she does a lot of undercover work and snooping about. But we don't actually get to see her really her fighting chops until that until that moment and man she is so cool she is so cool i can't get that across enough and she does a lot of really interesting things she kind of does what jason bourne popularized in that she kind of grabs anything that's nearby and uses it to her advantage you know she uses a rope that's nearby a hose for the garden to jump off a balcony she uses a frying pan to whack a guy in the face to knock his gun out of his hand. She uses the gun to shoot him. You know what I mean? Like she does a lot of really cool stuff like that. And I think it really added to your enjoyment of the movie in the, in the same way that the Jason Bourne franchise did that. And it's, it's not that Jason Bourne did that first, but I think the idea of a super spy has always been that of James Bond, right? And then you got Jason Bourne, then we got in TV, we got Jack Bauer, and then we got J- John Wick, who's not a spy, but still, it's in that same vein. And now we have Lorraine Brault, right, who is the character that Charlize Theron plays. And then, on the flip side, we get the scene later on in the movie, towards the end, and, and it's it's a fantastic scene. We'll talk a little bit more about it, but one of the fights towards the end of that scene, the stairwell scene, as it's, I think, being called now... But she kind of fights this guy she had previously fought in the movie. And she got she gets in, in that first fight, she got into a fist fight with this guy. And he threw her around pretty easily because he was taller than her. He looked like he clearly weighed more than her. I mean, he also got the drop on her. So it, it definitely contributed to the kind of beating she took. But she still got away. She still lost them and c- accomplished her objective. But she meets this guy again. And they fight. And there were such... It was such an amazing fight because it was choreographed so well, but she 
you know, she lands a blow on him. She whacks him in the face with one of those portable stove things in, in an apartment somewhere. And he takes the blow and he crashes against the wall. And then he gets back up and slugs her in the face, which clearly dazes her. And she falls against the wall. And there's a scene, you know, there's about 60 seconds in that fight where they're just, they're kind of just staggering around, grasping for any little thing, not even their gun, which has fallen by the wayside, but they're grabbing for any little thing that can help them in this fight. And they're clearly tired. They're clearly injured. They're clearly hurting. And they keep going. And I think that kind of rawness makes you enjoy the 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 movie that much more i was i was holding my breath in that scene and it was so it was so cool honestly it really was cool and i guess this would be a good point to mention that that stairwell scene and the reason it was really cool is not just the spectacle and the choreography but it was done in one take you know kind of like that birdman thing i know that's kind of what popularized that these days but it was it was done in one take where the camera moves very fluidly in and out of rooms close-ups on characters underneath characters past characters and whoever did the camera work for that deserves an award or something like that because that was really cool and you know what i'm i'm not naive enough to assume that it was the whole like what 10 minute scene was done in one take maybe it was and, and if it was awesome but I think there are some points where there are some clever edits thrown in. You know, it goes under a guy as he's sw- as he's kind of twirling around with his jacket, and the jacket kind of passes over the camera, and and, and it's, it only passes over the camera for a very split second. But that is an edit, right? That's the job of these film editors to do that, and they do. A, I do a fantastic job if that is the case. Truly, I'm not. I I have not worked in the movie industry, but. I think that's probably a great place for an edit, right? And I don't know it. That those edits really—that's they're part of movie making, and I think that really adds to the spectacle of it all. Truly, knowing that that's what they did, and it still looks seamless—that's awesome, right? I think that's fantastic. And that stairwell scene, that whole thing from beginning to end, is truly the highlight of that movie. And it's and it's great that that is the kind of culminating action sequence. There's some one of the ones in the, at the end of the movie especially the last kind of five minutes of the film. But that is by far the highlight, the climax, the the top part of Atomic Blonde. And once they get to it, you should definitely pay attention because it is so masterfully done. It's awesome. It's, it's, It's worth the price of admission by itself. I've waxed on a lot about the positives of this movie, and I haven't even mentioned James McAvoy. He's a fantastic actor, and he's in it as well. He gives a really fun performance. I, I don't know. I, I really like him in generally anything he's in. Same, same with Charlie Theron, really. But James McAvoy really chews the scenery in a positive way in this movie. You know, he really plays the kind of grizzled vet who wants to do his job but wants to have a fun time doing it doesn't really care about a lot of other people he really just cares about himself he's a bit selfish you know he he likes to drink he likes to womanize he's loud he's a bit obnoxious he's kind of an asshole really right but uh he he sells it so well and james mcavoy is such a talented actor that i loved every scene he was in and really I would say he stole the show, but Charlize Theron is the star, and she's clearly the star for a reason because she's awesome as Lorraine. But uh, I find it interesting, too, because James McAvoy's character, his last name is Percival, and, you know, he's English. He works for MI6, and Percival is one of the Knights of the Round Table from the Arthurian legend, and I think it was interesting because, you know, they clearly named him Percival because you think he's going to be this upstanding order of the British Empire type dude, right? And he's just, like I mentioned, kind of an asshole, right? And I think that was a deliberate choice and i should mention this atomic blonde is based on a graphic novel and so 
all these characters' names are probably taken from this novel. So if Percival is the name here, it's probably the name in the graphic novel as well. But from what I understand, this character is pretty well represented in this movie. So I would imagine the graphic novels are the the artist's reasoning is the same as the keeping it in the movie. And I, I just it's not like it's a super important detail or anything, but I do find it kind of interesting. Sophia Butella is in the movie as well, and we've mentioned her on the podcast, of course. If you don't remember, she was the mummy in, well, you know, <laughs> the the mummy, right, with Tom Cruise. Um, but, you know, she's great in the movie as well. She has the kind of out-of-her-depth French intelligence agent. And, you know, the movie is rated 18A, just so you're aware. But holy smokes, there is an R-rated scene with Charlie Theron and Sophia Butella where they hook up with each other. And, I, you know, they kind of make out leading up to the scene. And I kind of thought they would just leave that to your imagination. And then the very next scene is them just getting completely naked and touching and feeling each other and making out and doing all these really sexual things. And I mean, I would, I would be long if I wasn't a little, uh, you know, hot under the collar, you know, <laughs> maybe that's gross, but, uh, it was certain. I, I kind of looked around the theater at that point, partly because I'm sitting next to one of my really, really good friends. And he, we kind of just both chuckled because we were both doing the same thing. We look around and everyone else in the theater, like the, the looks on people's faces, maybe they just weren't expecting that. And I just find it funny because, you know, everyone laughs and applauds at the vi- extreme, extreme violence in these movies. And then, you know, they have this sex scene. <laughs> People have their their hands over their mouths and they're just gaping, shocked. Like, oh, my God, how could, how could they do this? Like, won't somebody think of the children? Right. And I don't know. It was it was an entertaining scene for more than one reason. I'll say that because they're both extremely attractive, of course. But. It was an interesting addition to the movie, and they kind of come back to that a little bit. There are some scenes where they're kind of cuddling in bed and sharing information. There's some callbacks to some lines they discuss, but, you know, I think that first scene is definitely maybe partly shock value and partly just to show off these two extremely attractive women, not that I'm complaining in any way, shape, or form. Um, but we should talk some about some of the negatives, and truly there are not that many negatives. The, on, the only negative, really, the, or, or at least the largest one, is the plot and it's not that the plot is difficult to understand but it's certain it certainly certainly is a little convoluted so there's a lot of ideas about finding some kind of list that has names on it that could compromise intelligence operations all around the world it, you know it, who has the list this character has the list he doesn't have the list another guy has it another guy kills that guy and takes the list and then there's also a double agent in there and who's the double agent is it this person is it that person is this person a triple agent like that's really the the main negative of the movie. It's maybe a little hard to follow. And my friend and I had to spend uh, a few minutes after the movie kind of debriefing about just, were we sure this is how the movie ended? I think we were not spot on, but I think we were pretty accurate in our take on what the movie was about in terms of who was a double agent, who was not, you know, who who had this, who had, who didn't have that kind of thing. And... You know, if that sounds confusing, imagine watching it, right? So, but you know what? Like I said, that is definitely the largest negative of the movie. And even that is not enough to derail the movie as a whole. Maybe the third act kind of drags a little bit while you're kind of waiting for something awesome to happen. And then the stairwell scene happens and you're kind of like, oh, okay, well, I could leave right now and be satisfied with this movie. But it, it, they do some really cool things. I think they still explain the kind of twist, quote unquote, easily in the movie and I still really liked it. It does actually make me want to read the graphic novel, I will admit. I've never read it before, so 
Maybe it will be just as confusing. Maybe they've left some things out. Who knows, right? But I will say this. Atomic Blonde is a worthy spiritual successor to John Wick. You know, it's not in the same universe. It would be cool if maybe later on we find out that it is, but I really don't think it is. But regardless, it's fantastic. Great choreography, great acting, amazing soundtrack, amazing fight scenes. You know, it's just a lot of fun. And I wholeheartedly recommend that you go see this movie in theaters because it's a lot of fun to watch with a friend or with an engaged audience like really any movie is. But like I said, Atomic Blonde, awesome, worth your time, worth your money. Those are our reviews for this episode of Houston. We have a podcast in this looking forward segment. We'll talk a little bit more about some things coming up. But first, I want to say, you know, my bad on the whole big sick thing. I think at this point, everyone knows it's it's an awesome movie, a, a nice kind of indie, smaller release, you know, but I will go see it and I'll, I'll probably have to relegate it to one of those Baywatch segments. I just haven't gotten around to seeing it. I admit it kind of touches on some things in terms of my own relationship and how that kind of, the last one for me kind of ended not so not so great and it's still kind of I don't know still kind of fresh so I admit I've been putting it off right but in this looking forward segment I I will say that one of the next movies I want to do is Logan Lucky which is kind of if you haven't seen the trailer you should look it up with Channing Tatum Adam Driver Daniel Craig. And it just looks like a lot of fun. It looks like the redneck Ocean's Eleven kind of thing. And it's directed by the same same director from Ocean's Eleven from the remake with George Clooney and Matt Damon. And it looks like a lot of fun. So I will be aiming to do that. I believe it comes out next week. So that'll be something to target. And another thing to mention, and this won't be on the very next episode because we do it every two weeks. So this might be on the on the seventh episode, we're on episode five. So maybe in episode seven or episode eight, it, it will see, right? But I believe I mentioned in episode one that I am located in Toronto and that's where we recorded these episodes. And of course, what is coming up in September that is movie related that I of course will be going to because what movie fan who lives in Toronto or in the general area won't go to this is TIFF, the Toronto International Film Festival. And I try to go every year. I usually go to a few with my friends, but this year I decided to really amp it up. You know, I'm going to, I'm not going to, I bought a 20 ticket package, which means, I guess technically that means I could go to one movie with 19 friends. I could go to 10 movies with two friends. I could go to 20 movies by myself. And, you know, there are some really interesting films coming out at TIFF this year. So here's some of the ones that I am 100% going to be seeing. Even It doesn't necessarily have to be the premiere. I'm going to see it at TIFF at some point. You know, they have some repeat showings. Last year, for example, I got to see The Martian, not the one where the director and actor showed up, but the, you know, the second one that all the fans get to go see. And you, any whatever, you still get to go see it before the um, release in, in theaters, right? So it's still a lot of fun. I'm, I want to go see The Disaster Artist. That's something I'm really aiming for with uh, James Franco, Dave's Franco, about the making of The Room, right? Suburbicon, starring Matt Damon, Julianne Moore, Oscar Isaac. I believe it's directed by George Clooney and written by the Coen brothers. Looks a lot of fun. Battle of the Sexes with Emma Stone and Steve Carell about, you know, the, the that very famous match in the 70s between a man and a woman tennis player. 
Call me by your name, I, Tanya. The catcher was a spy. The mountains between us with Idris Elba. Three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. That is the name of the, the movie, by the way, in case you thought I was just saying something random. Um, with Francis McDormand. And I don't know, it looks... There's so many more movies. There are documentaries. There's the Midnight Madness movies. There, there's so many things to see. And TIFF is always such an interesting time because... Similarly to other things, other conventions, other gatherings of people, you can meet people at TIFF from any racial background, any ethnic background, any social or economic background, people who have different views than you on pol- politics and etc. But you know, when you go to TIFF, so like I said, when you go to any other kind of gathering of people, that the thing you have in common is that you all love movies. And in that sense, you can talk to anyone about any movie and, you know, maybe they'll say, I don't like this movie, I do like this one. But that's the kind of reason I love going to TIFF, of course, secondary to actually seeing these movies. But that's the kind of reason I like going to these gatherings, because you get to meet similarly like-minded people. And who knows, maybe we'll pick up some new listeners for the podcast. You never know. Fingers crossed, right? That's it from me tonight. I hope you enjoyed the reviews of Atomic Blonde and The Dark Tower. I always appreciate your listens. I appreciate hearing about the podcast in person, on Twitter, etc. If you ever want to leave a line, let me know. But for now, this has been Episode 5, and thank you for listening to Houston. We have a podcast. Don't be afraid.